Hello, and welcome to Two Hearts, a New Who podcast. I am CJ. And I'm James, and this is the only podcast where we need you to tell us what you need. Say it. Tell me. Painkillers? Do you need aspirin? Codeine? Paracetamol? I don't know. Pepto-Bismol? Liquid paraffin? Vitamin C? Vitamin D? Vitamin E? Is it food? Something simple? Bowl of soup? Nice bowl of soup? Soup in a sandwich? Bowl of soup in a nice ham sandwich? (laughs) I need you to shut up. (sighs) Good lord, that was exhausting. Here on Two Hearts, we take a look at another episode from the 2005 Doctor Who revival, and this week we take a deep dive into the very first bona fide Christmas special, bar one of Doctor Who, The Christmas Invasion. But first, how are you? Did you just pronounce it bona fide? It's been said. People say bona fide. Jesus. Oh, All right. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty good this week, actually. Uh, it's been a productive week work-wise. If anybody out there is following my writing, I've had a couple of big pieces go up that I was very excited about. So that's been good and productive and nice feeling. Uh, how about you? That's good to hear. Um, I have had uh, an okay week. I've, pretty, I've moved for the last few weeks, as you're already aware. And I've been spending the last weekend, this weekend, just putting together furniture. So I'm quite sore all over. But I have been following your articles and fantastic job, by the way, James. Thank you. For anyone who's unaware, I got a chance to sit down and talk with a creative director at Square Enix, um, which was a whole Zoom meeting and kind of a big deal. And I certainly wasn't shitting myself the entire time, Um, but it was good. It was good. It's a lot of fun. Uh, That is up on Power Up. And I've also linked to it on my Twitter if you want to check it out there. Fantastic. Um, Yeah, but there is a little, like, tidbit that I just want to, like, address oh so briefly, if you'll allow me. Um, I woke up this morning and opened up Facebook. And you know how it always comes up with, like, the what where you were on this day, blah, blah, years ago. Um, This morning I opened up and it said on this day, exactly six years ago, I was at the Doctor Who experience in Cardiff. Uh, which was like one of the best days of my life. And if you look on my Facebook, there's like an image of me on the TARDIS set where I have the biggest, most impossible grin like ever. I was just like overwhelmed with happiness in that moment. Um, uh, it's also tinged with sadness because like that was also the day I realized that the Doctor Who team were in London uh, shooting Dark Water, Death in Heaven, like literally the scene out front of St. Paul's. Uh, and I was stuck in Cardiff. <laughs> so that was fine. <laughs> but um but yeah. Truly, I think the greatest tragedy in Two Hearts's brief history already is that both you and I were on the same continent as Jenna Coleman at some point and missed her. Um it, it haunts me. It keeps me up at night. It is an absolute tragedy. Uh, that would keep me awake too. <laughs> Uh, But speaking of keeping people from things, I think we should roll right into our discussion of the Christmas Invasion because there is no Doctor Who news this week. Uh, It's all a bit light. Um, So without further ado, let's dive right in. Government sources are calling this our longest night. You will surrender or they will die. Tell them this planet is armed. We do not surrender. Look in the sky, there's a great big alien invasion and I don't know what to do. No sign of the Doctor. Nothing yet. 
The Christmas Invasion is the 2005 Christmas special from the Doctor Who revival. It is directed by James Hawes and written by showrunner Russell T. Davies. It is notably the first of the special types that would become a staple of the show moving forward. Uh, Now, let's check in with IMDb before we do my official plot rundown. And I quote, It's Christmas Eve, but this is to be far from Silent Night. Oh boy, we're off to a bad start. The cruel Sycorax have come to Earth to enslave mankind, and as ever, only the Doctor can stop them. Unfortunately, he's lying in a coma in Jackie's home. That's... Oh, this is a bad start to our next season of IMDb descriptions. We should also note that 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 description ends with a dot, 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 so you know it was written by somebody who has a good grasp of how to write good synopses. Um, but before we come down too harshly on anyone else's plot synopses abilities, let's burn through mine real quick. <clears throat> All right. So for those who have not seen the Christmas invasion, uh, essentially immediately after the events of parting of the ways, the TARDIS crash lands back in present day London as a newly regenerated doctor and a very confused Rose seek shelter with Jackie and Mickey on Christmas Eve. While the Doctor recovers from his regeneration and Rose attempts to salvage her relationships, the UK government, now under the leadership of Harriet Jones, receives news that its Mars probe has been intercepted by a large alien ship belonging to the Sycorax. When Rose and her family are threatened by Christmas-themed robots, they attempt to hide in the TARDIS, but along with Harriet Jones and several other government officials, are beamed aboard the Sycorax ship. Using blood manipulation, the Sycorax threaten to kill a third of the world's population, but are stopped by the Doctor, who has finally finished his regeneration cycle. The Doctor defeats the leader of the Sycorax in a sword duel, and demands they leave Earth peacefully as his prize. As the gang watches the ship leave orbit, Harrier orders Torchwood to destroy the ship using a new alien tech cannon, and subsequently evokes the Doctor's wrath as he starts a rumour that removes her from office for her actions. Whew! Good, good job. And it's also noted at the end there that uh, the Doctor and Rose do reunite and go off in their travels together. That's the actual ending. Rose says, you know, I don't think you want me to come with me. And he's like, no, I want you to come with me. I don't think you want to come with me. Uh, I do want to come with you. And then they go off together. Uh, <laughs> my tone there should imply uh, some of the feelings uh, I have about this episode that maybe you share with me, James. Uh, yeah, I, I think to to say that this episode is a continued extension of the heterosexual nonsense that went on in the finale of the last season is a bit of an understatement. Um, but before we dive into that whole hot mess, I know that you've got a few quote-unquote interesting tidbits down here that you'd like to talk about. Thank you for starting me off by saying that my tidbits were interesting. I appreciate that. <laughs> Um, yes, I do. So mm, this is probably, I think this is the first bona fide, <laughs> bona fide, uh, Christmas episode, uh, other than the 1966 Feast of Stephen, which aired as part of the multi-episode Daleks saga, the Daleks master plan. Um, but that wasn't really an episode set at Christmas. It was just like aired around Christmas or on Christmas, maybe I can't remember. Um, and it ended with the doctor, like saying Merry Christmas, everybody like directly to camera. So that's a choice. We'll skate right past that. Um, this is the, I'm, I'm choosing to believe this is like the first episode that actually acknowledged Christmas, uh, in a meaningful way in the story. Um, the, there are a few things, the Sycorax, 
The Sycorax of Law are actually named after the witch mother of Caliban from Shakespeare's The Tempest, which is basically played as a joke that will pay off in season three. I don't know what the intention was behind naming them that character other than that it sounds vaguely um, bone-like and it, I mean, the, the name does fit the description of the of the aliens in this episode, but um, yeah, it doesn't really, I don't think it extends beyond that. Um, one thing I didn't know, uh, uh, costuming-wise, David Tennant added the Converse shoes to his costume, which I didn't actually know. I thought the original intention was that he was going to wear a pair of boots like uh, bloody Matt Smith. Um, I don't know why I said bloody Matt Smith, but like Matt Smith. Um, but David Tennant added the Converse shoes because he wanted to undercut the seriousness of the suit. And uh, when you look at it now, you honestly can't imagine it without it because he's just so... Uh, I think the term that often gets applied to his costume is nerd chic, um, which he definitely exemplifies with the glasses and like the rumpled suit and the shoes as well. Um, the other little note that I have here is one I really like, which is that this is the first use of an original song in the new series, which became sort of like a tradition in these Christmas specials up until uh, the doctor, the widow and the wardrobe, which sort of did away with the tradition. Um, But yeah, every Christmas special had an original song in it, which I really like. Uh, This one is more of a jaunty kind of like, I want to say like eighties Brit pop kind of thing. I could be wrong in saying that, uh, but it's played over the dinner scene at the very end of the episode. And it was written specifically for David Tennant's character. And the lyrics also uh, correspond with his story, which I find interesting. Those are my tidbits. I'm standing by them. But let's get into the actual episode, the discussion of the Christmas invasion. Um, yeah, because there's a, there's a lot to get into with the Christmas invasion. Um, I guess it overall impressions first of all do you want to just start by unpacking maybe how you feel about this episode i don't like it (laughs) it's how i feel about the christmas invasion and i was thinking a lot this morning about my overall impressions of season two which this episode definitely belongs to and i it's it's probably the first series that i like truly remember as it watching as a child um and uh it accompanied a lot of the like the height of the popularity for me of the show um and it's funny because like it's also the series that i don't revisit ever like i i have not watched these episodes since they went out and that's by choice because i have not uh i just yeah i never really quite vibed with this sort of more adventurous the adventure tone and like the childlike tone of this show and i guess i'm saying childlike and i mean it incorrectly um what i mean is it's it's just like there's a an overall effort to appeal to children i feel with these episodes much more that i rejected even as a kid and the christmas invasion definitely kicks that off it's just a bit of a mess this episode (laughs) Um, what do you think? Look, I mean, I am the resident guy that hates fun. Um, I'm also the resident guy that hates Christmas. So this is a real double whammy for me on, on a few levels here. Um, uh, I don't like it. I, I It's weird. When we first watched it, because um, we watched this 
uh, like three weeks ago, something like that, because of our new recording schedule. Um, and we did the classic episode in between there. Everything got a bit sort of out of whack, but we were feeling so good about the show after Parting of the Ways that both of us ended up just rolling on and watching the next one anyway, because we just needed more who, and we were just ready for Tenet. And I think Tenet is his own discussion that I'm, I'm very much looking forward to having later in this episode because I, I adore him in this. Um, but when I watched it then, I was like, oh, that was that was wacky, that was wild, it was interesting. I'm not sure that I liked it, but it was something. Like, I felt something for it. And then coming back to it uh, this week in order to sort of sit down and take notes and really dive into what's going on with the Christmas invasion, just the whole time I was like, oh, this is... Um, this is this has got some some things going on. There there are some there are some real problems with the script of this episode, and not even just the script, but even the production values of this episode are wildly all over the place. Characterization is all over the place. It's um, it's not good. <laughs> yeah, I have to agree with you, especially with the direction. I find this to be one of the worst. Uh, that's not a word, one of the poorer um, direction efforts, um, which is interesting because it's from James Hawes, who is like a very fine director who did the Empty Child Dr. Dancers uh, two-parter from last season. Um, but I think that he's just really let down by some choice shots, uh, especially during the like the um, fight at the end and some overall bad effects. It's... It, and I know that we always say like it hasn't aged well because like obviously technology has progressed far more from 2005, but like the technology was there. Like there, I don't think there's much of an excuse for the bad effects this in this particular episode. Well, no. And to your point, like James Hawes, the directing that he did in uh, the empty child and the, the doctor dances is beautiful. Those episodes look a million bucks still like they, they they've, they've held up quite well and so to look at something like this which you know I, I think everything after the christmas themed robots like the the plastic santas i think look really great and you get that one shot of like the mask falls off one of them and it like knocks to the ground with a clang and like it's got a good like sort of tactile feel to all of it um but then you get like the weird cgi christmas tree you get that um sword fight at the end between the doctor and the sycorax leader which is it, it's it's almost it's really difficult to explain listeners but like it is filmed almost entirely from like the ground looking up. And so all you get in the shot is plain blue sky and somebody in a plastic suit and David Tennant swinging swords at each other. There's nothing else in the shot. It's, it's just staggeringly awkward and and weird. And I, I don't know what they were going for here. Um, I, I can't knock the ambition of having the doctor have a sword fight on the, you know, the outside of a ship that's hovering in, in over London. But um, man, uh, something went really wrong with the production um, technicalities here. And uh, it, it shows. Um, yeah, that's the scene that I uh, was referring to. And uh, you're right. Like the decision to shoot everything from the ground up is baffling at best. And also uh, it's funny because like when you look at behind the scene shots from that particular scene, like the ground that they're standing on is dirt. Like it fits the exterior of the ship. So I don't know why they chose to never show it. It 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 doesn't add anything at all. And the worst bit, the worst bit, and we're getting quite granular now, and we should probably not, but who cares? It's our podcast. Um it, the worst bit is the shot of David Tennant when he's had his hand cut off and he's like 
you cut my hand off? And he like you look at his wrist and it's just it's like he's pulled his hand down into his sleeve. Like there's just nothing there. And there's no like I get that they couldn't show blood. Like I obviously that would be too much for a kid's show, and especially for Christmas Day viewing. But like why <laughs> why and that that exemplifies uh the problems that i have with this episode it's just a bit of a mess but shall we start with this doctor yeah i i definitely agree um and look if i could just put in my own little granular granular complaint about the the handless scene um he's also filmed as if it's at sunset when he's regenerating his hand and then like it's broad daylight in the rest of those scenes it is completely bizarre but we are getting two last month in the minutia here so yeah let's start from the top because I, I think obviously the headline of the christmas invasion is that we do have a new doctor uh we've got david Tennant now in the role he's he's younger he's sexier he's younger yeah he um he does i think that 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 scene where he comes out of the tardis and he's like who am i am i life and soul Da da da. Am I sexy? And he has a little wink and click at Rose, and she's like, "Ooh, doctor." Um, there's a lot happening in this episode in terms of establishing his character, and I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that he has not got one of the best seasons. He, for me, remains quite an enigma not an enigma but like quite unformed or unchanged from his initial like characterization by the end of his first season and I think that's a problem when you consider when you consider like um Christopher Eccleston who came before him who was a doctor who very much developed and changed and had a, a journey and an arc over his first his only season to go to this doctor who is like dashing and an adventurer and young and like action and vengeful, so vengeful, my God. Um, you, you kind of lose something. You lose a bit of the, 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 the grandeur of Dr. Who by making that character just kind of a bit rote. What do you think? Uh, it, I mean, it's difficult for me to comment because um, to your point earlier about not revisiting this season, um, I also don't really like I, I remember instances from this season, but I don't remember anything about the overarching character. And so I can't really speak to where he's going to end up or where he's going to go in this season. Um, but I will say that by trying to do so much in a one hour episode to establish <clears throat> all of the different sort of components of what will create tenants who, um, but not even in an hour, because for the most part of the story, the doctor is incapacitated and asleep the whole time. And so you don't get to spend much time with him other than these like really quick scenes where he is awake again. Um, and in those scenes, we have to cycle so quickly through the, you know, he's younger, he, now he's charming. He knows that he's hot. Uh, but he's also still got that anger boiling inside of him. He's a bit of a goof, but he's also very serious. Like it has to do so much work in such a little amount of time that it ends up feeling like a very, um, it, it's almost cartoonish to me how quickly it flips between the tones of David Tennant's doctor in this episode. And 
it's not David Tennant's fault. The script just doesn't leave him enough room to sort of work with it. Uh, I think his performance here and from memory, his performance goes on to be sort of I- iconic. You know, he, he's a very, very, very charming actor. Um, and I, I love him in the role. Um, it's just that coming back to it now, sort of with my adult sensibilities and especially the, the way that it all relates to Rose, um, it's interesting already seeing some sort of like, oh, okay, like the seeds for the kind of um, less than ideal uh, macho adventurer, hyper-masculine shit that goes down in uh, Moffat's first few seasons. Um, I always kind of attributed that to like, oh, that's just like a a Moffat and Matt Smith problem. That never was really a problem with David Tennant. And now seeing him in his first episode here, I'm already seeing the signs of a show that seems to be on a crash course for this kind of like very Americanized, very mainstream ideal of what a male hero should be. Whereas I feel like Christopher Eccleston, if in part because of his age, because he's not as traditionally handsome, like, see, don't get me wrong, Christopher Eccleston, if you're listening, you're still a handsome dude. You would say no to me before I say no to you. Don't get me wrong, mate. But you're not a traditional sort of like leading man face and so when you when you roll all of those things together um the character kind of has to rely on more than just being charming and i feel like tenet and what would go on to happen with smith is that it does fall back into that a little bit too much you're right i think we do definitely see that trend from tenet onwards uh, start to appear in the show and um to your point about it him being quite cartoonish uh that is a tone that is a it's very it's actually very an apt kind of description for I think RTD's like vision of the show because he was very influenced by um I think like nineties uh Alan Moore kind of Judge Dredd um Watchmen type cartoon not I know that those aren't cartoons they're comic books they're um not even comic books like comic novels um but like that was very much his style and like and superhero action hero comics and cartoons like were his thing it's no surprise that russell t davies like once wanted to have a career as a comic book artist you know and that extends to his storytelling and to the and to the progressions of his stories um and in this episode in particular it like that is so prevalent um when you consider the moment like this entire episode is based around Rose feeling abandoned and lost and like she's been left behind by the doctor who's in the next room. Don't worry, we'll get to that. Um, And then the minute he wakes up and he's like, oh, you miss me. She's just like, oh, doctor. And it's not like shorthand. It's not necessarily like um, playing like, those very like understandable human beats as shorthand. It's just not a human reaction. It's very cartoonish. It's like her ability to flip on a dime in that scene is exemplif- is, is an example of the cartoonish kind of air that kickstarts David Tennant's hero of the show. Yeah. And it's just like, okay. The thing about, like we talk about with Moffat that, um, 
his major problems when he first got started with the show are that he very clearly had this like deep reverence and desire to emulate uh, a very particular style of Americanized action hero, right? Um, it, it's it's very clear in the way that he sort of establishes and writes his initial seasons that it is very much pivoting around uh, tropes that he's borrowed from um, those particular genres. And so to say that, you know, you've got Russell T Davies on the other end, who, something I hadn't really thought about until you just said it now, but his whole history of wanting to be a comic book artist and maybe having reverence for the sort of graphic novels and the way that those very specifically do lean into tropes sometimes, um, you can see him kind of pulling from those for, uh, I mean, more so for the Tenet era than the, um, the, uh, Eccleston era, I, I would say, like, because I've got in my notes, like, already, I don't know if Russell T Davies wants him to be uh, like a cowboy, like lone wanderer type, or like a goofy, fun-loving type. And I think that it's definitely possible to blend both of those things. And I'm sure that, like, granted, this is again just his first episode, so we're we're going to get into this as we go along. Um, but it's the way that it switches between those tones on a dime that doesn't feel particularly organic. Um, and I think, as I said, Tenet is doing the best that he possibly can. Um, but he's also surrounded by characters who, to your point, aren't really operating as people as much as they are operating as, um, uh, sort of, they are, they are fill-ins for a particular role that the story needs them to be and everybody suffers for it. Um, it's, and I don't want to get too off of the doctor yet. Cause I'm not sure if you've got anything else that you really want to say about the doctor before we uh, get into the Rose stuff. Yeah. The only thing I really do want to say in, to circle back to something you brought up briefly before is that it isn't David Tennant. I want to say specifically because I find him as an actor and a performer, like utterly charismatic. Um, there is obviously a reason why he was cast in this role and it's here. It's his ability to compl- completely command the screen. And he is served by the script in that sense that, cause he gets an entire monologue to just walk around the aliens and be like, Papa pow, break your sword, have your sword fight. I'm the best person in the room. You can all fuck off. Um, he gets that moment and it's great and it's magnificent. And he's a really great performer. Um, and I also don't want to um, to ignore the fact that, like, he is so sexy. And there is a whole period of my life that is definitely structured around a sexual awakening because of David Tennant. I'm not the only one to say that. That's very special and very personal to me. Um, that's why I'm putting it on this podcast where everyone can hear it. And, um I, I, yeah, I genuinely do like David Tennant, the performer. I just don't necessarily think that the character as written was Russell T's finest moment. Yeah, I, I think that's completely fair. Um, to your point, uh, and look, I, I don't mean to skate over the whole sexual awakening thing. I'm very happy for you. Like, you know, pride yay we love all of that um <laughs> but you've got in your um again quote-unquote interesting tidbits here uh that where is it davies has said that the doctor's accent and personality is supposed to be because he imprinted off of rose like a chicken hatching from an egg 
And I do think that is an interesting point to touch on before we leave the Doctor behind in this discussion. Because it's something that we've talked about before. The way that the Doctor regenerates into their next uh, sort of incarnation can sometimes very much be a deliberate commentary on the Doctor that came before or the experiences that came before. And so when you've got something like, you know... um, Matt Smith has this kind of like big bravado action run where ultimately he ends up being just completely broken by the course of events. He's entirely reminded of how old he truly is by the end of that. And so when he trans- when he regenerates, he becomes Peter Capaldi, who is a face that can't hide the age and the weariness and the pain. And that's really interesting. And again, you brought up to me recently this concept that somebody had on, on Twitter, I think you said, about... Peter Capaldi regenerating into um, Jodie Whittaker is essentially a way of the show addressing and saying he's finally healed from that trauma. He's let go of the time war of all of his baggage to become youthful and and literally reborn as, as something completely new. And so I think there's some really interesting commentary going on there. And so when you take that all the way back to what's happened here with um, Eccleston to tenet um it is interesting that the doctor that we've got now is very much a reflection of what rose saw in him and what rose loved about him he is deliberately sort of regenerated into the ideal man for rose and i think in turn because rose is our sort of audience surrogate and substitute um he became something that maybe they thought the audiences really wanted to see in the doctor which was slightly more human face, like not more human face but like he is younger. He is, he's, he's cuter. Like he's sexier. Like there is a inherent, um, easier sort of way to relate to him and to fall into something with him. than there is with Christopher Eccleston, who is quite an intense figure. You cast, uh, David Tennant, who is, he's charming and he, and he's, and he's really lovely. And to your point and to his credit, he does such a good job of it that you do sort of fall in love with him straight away from the moment that he shows up. Um, and I, I just, I, I find that to be a really interesting sort of, element to what Russell T Davies has done here. Um, Mm. Yeah. I really love it. And I I, honestly, I want to have this discussion for as long as possible because there are so many things and what there's one thing from what you've just said that I like, I vibe with, which is the idea that the he's picked this face for Rose. Like he's picked it because Rose, like, because in season one, there was like the father figure, there was the mentor, there was the love interest and all of those different directions that was trying to like pull itself in. He basically picked a lane with this like character and they went for it, which is good. Cause I think that's one of our main criticisms of season one was like the muddling of their relationship, um, which I thought was good. You didn't, that's beside the point. Um, the one thing that is interesting for me, is the fact that, like, Chris Rackleson's ending was him not necessarily forgiving himself, but, like, giving up his guilt. But he's still got the trauma. And I think that that's one of the ways, one of the things that Tennant's character does uh, exemplify, um, because he's still, like, running away from himself, and he's, like, kind of turned inwards by putting on a younger face, by putting on a show for Rose, for his companion and um so he's given up his guilt but not his trauma and the reason why i'm saying this is because there is a case to be made to compare this episode with um deep breath with because it's the only other episode in the new series where a companion has carried over from one doctor to another in this instance it's rose from nine to ten with that one it's clara from eleven to twelve 
But the interesting difference with Deep Breath is that it was the Doctor shedding his youthful exterior and putting on the his quote-unquote real face, lifting the veil, I think is the term they use in that episode. And you've got to wonder, like, if this is him still running, then Capaldi is the obvious endpoint for this particular story. And that's what I think it goes to what you're saying about uh, Capaldi to Jodie Whittaker as being the end of this time war period of the show. Like, because that final line of I let you go is the end, is he, is the final, like, letting go of the guilt and all of that and starting afresh. Um, I could talk about this for ages. <laughs> I really could. Uh, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I, I feel very much the same way. Regeneration cycles are such a fascinating uh, metaphor through which to explore the psychology um, of the Doctor. I do... If I could level one criticism at it, I, I wish that this was maybe a little bit more in the text before the Capaldi stuff happens, um, because it, it's very easy to talk about the Matt Smith to Peter Capaldi transition because the show directly addresses and creates a character arc around it, right? So that's really wonderful. But in this earlier stage, you do very much get the sense that, like, I don't think Russell T Davies was giving consideration to him becoming a younger man as a means of sort of like retreating into himself and maybe not knowing how to deal with his trauma. You know, I, I think that is, we, we bring what we bring to these, uh, to these products to whether it's, you know, star Wars or this, like whatever it is. Um, and I, I do enjoy doing that. I just wish that the show had um, just a, a touch of that self-awareness at this point in its production. And on the topic of self-awareness and how much the show doesn't have at this point in its run, uh, the Rose stuff is mm. um, a, a real sticking point of this episode. We should talk about Rose because I think she gets a real raw deal in this episode. Yes, yeah. Uh, a raw deal does sum it up nicely. Um, the point that we were just making about how in this episode, a lot of the characters operate as tropes from a particular style of story is really like crushingly obvious in the, in the way that Rose is written here. Um, imagine the disappointment that I was feeling about her characterization going back and forth in the previous season. And to your point about, you know, they, they chose a direction to run in with what the doctor was going to be to her. That's awesome. But in doing so, they also very much chose a direction to run in as what she's going to be to the Doctor. And unfortunately, it just... In this episode, I'm not sure where we're going in the future, right? But strictly in this episode, it entirely reduces her down to the crying damsel. Um, she gets maybe one or two flashes of actual self-introspection and realisation. But for the most part, she is crying, she's uh, helpless, and then she's just kind of entirely done away with once the doctor comes back and becomes essentially just like literally during the sword fight moment, which is obviously already quite like a, um, uh, a tropey pulpy kind of moment to end this episode on in the first place. Um, you've got Rose on the sidelines of this fight, like mm. jumping up and down and like, that's my doctor, go doctor. And it, Oh, it, it just leaves such a bad taste in my mouth because for every issue that I've had with Rose being the quote-unquote girlfriend archetype to the Doctor in the previous season, it's all there is in this episode. You're right. Um, you're absolutely right. And the crying, 
I don't want to discredit crying as like a, as a bad reaction or something a companion shouldn't do. Um, we said before, I don't know if we've actually said it on the podcast before, but you and I have said that, you know, one of those great strengths of Clara as a companion is uh, the fact that they are given a lot of crying scenes, but it's never a show of weakness. It's always part of her strength and part of her like ability because when she's crying, she's also really putting herself out there and she's really pushing herself this episode is different um and the scene the most egregious scene is the scene uh where rose is like wailing to her mum. he's left me now i can respond to that emotionally and i know that's exactly what russell t's doing like he's living in the emotionality of his characters all the time but at the same time like the histrionics of the scene put forward the idea that Rose literally can't function without the doctor and forgets like everything that like made them an amazing kick-ass action character before. Like the one thing that's so annoying about this episode is like the, the, that Rose's only like plan is to hide in the TARDIS. And she's like, you know, when I'm at home, I'm useless. And the only way I know how to be like of any help is to be with the doctor, you know, but at the same time, like Jackie's like preparing tea and making food and like, and being like quite proactive and Mickey's the same. He's finding out information about the Sycorax and the pilot fish. Um, and Rose is just like crying and flapping about and talking about how her life on earth is meaningless um, to the people that like she can rely on to come back to when she needs to. Like, I just, I've always championed Russell T Davies like ability to tap into um, like human emotions and reactions. But like, like I just wish that Rose had had more agency in this episode and like a moment where they stepped up. And I think that that moment is supposed to be where she gives the speech to the Sycorax leader. Right. But like they play it not as a joke, but like she, she plays it very much like Billy Piper plays it much as like, she's extremely out of her depth. And I, don't believe the same character that took the time vortex into themselves and like saved literally the all of humanity would have this reaction like give the girl some credit and let her be a hero that's all i'm gonna say uh yeah i I completely agree and uh, there's so much to unpack here with rose because you know like you said about you can relate to the emotional reality that she's going through in the he left me mum scene right um it's it's not that we don't empathize with this concept of you've had a formative experience with somebody and they are seemingly now gone that's a good place to start a conversation about a character arc in an episode right um the problem is that it never extends beyond her just sort of quietly sobbing about it um and i think that's a fault of the writing obviously because if you'd had if if you start with her showing up she can have her whole he's left me mum scene and she she breaks down crying but then we need to transition into a scene where she says something along the lines of like yes i know he's explained to me that he's still the same man but he's not the man like i i fell in love with or the man i learned to trust or the man i saw as a friend that there's none of that it's it's never given any examination there's never any vocalization of the process that's going on inside of rose's head it's just completely reduced down to the crying visual shorthand and an unfortunate side effect of that is that it does in turn reduce her to a shorthand of a character in this episode um and to your point about the whole basically um the alien ship reaches earth and chaos is sort of breaking out everywhere and rose says 
the only plan I've really got at the moment is to just get us into the TARDIS. It's the only safe place on Earth, right? And uh, I think Mickey and, and Jackie kind of push back on her a tiny bit. And she she has this really great moment where she snaps and she's like, you know, when I'm out there with him, it's different. But when I'm here, uh, I'm useless. And all I've really got for us now is to run and to hide. And she says, I'm sorry for that. And it's, it's a really great moment. And, and it's because it does give her words to use i guess like she actually gets to explain how she um but the same thing with the regeneration uh loss of a a partner stuff is that that moment should be a building block for a larger moment and instead it's not it's the show stops after i'm useless whereas it should be i'm useless let me figure out why i feel that way and without giving her that second step it just doesn't let her be the rose that we know that she is like she yeah she's been prone to like emotional moments before of course she is she's a 19 year old teenager who's been through some really wild shit um but it just it every moment in in the in this episode about rose stops before it actually starts to get interesting and her big speech to the sycorax leader is uh, the perfect culmination of that um because on paper, in theory, as a moment, it's really fantastic. Um, Rose is forced to sort of, sort of, you know, not stop her crying, but like sort of to really face up to to the reality of what's going on here. She has to be the hero in that moment, right? And to your point, it's it's not necessarily qu- like actually played as a joke, but the way that Billy Piper delivers it and the way that it's written is very stop-start. It's very unsure. And so the secret responds with, you know, do you think you're clever with your stolen words? And I just can't help but imagine what that line would have been like in response to a genuine speech from Rose about what she's actually been able to do, like walking through time and space, destroying dialects, saving races. Like there is genuine character development for Rose to have pulled on in that moment to try and like sort of, you know, pop off her chest and, and be the hero. But because everything in that scene has to revolve around the fact that the doctor's about to walk out and save the day, she's just another casualty along the line of she doesn't get to be the hero. Um, and where she's at in her arc, this is the beginning of her second season as well. She's completely reduced down to nothing again. And it just, oh, it really gets me. One of the worst things about this episode is how much Rose, how unlikable Rose is. She's a really unlikable version of herself in this episode. And she's constantly not only whinging, but like, she's really, she's snapping at like her mum and Mickey. And I go back to like the fact that they are always there for her. And I think even Mickey always says something like, you know, I don't go changing my face. And that's, that the whole Mickey thing points to too much like macho, like competitiveness between the doctor and, and Mickey and there's a whole thing there I don't want to go into but like that line is still true like these are her constants these are her rocks the people that like are always there that she can go back to and she's like treating them like absolute shit it's just real bad Rose gets a real raw deal um I feel bad because like Billy Piper's still giving such a great performance in this episode and she's like utterly likable as a human being but the character as written I don't know. Well, that's kind of the problem. It's like what we talked about with Tenet as well. Like um, these actors like Tenet and, and Piper are just outpacing this script. Like they're doing laps around it, right? Because they are a lot more interesting and nuanced than the script is actually letting them be. Um, and oh, it's, it's just, it's a real shame to see. And I worry about the precedent that this is establishing moving forward 
um, with what we can expect with Rose because, you mm. know, spoiler alert, I watched the next episode. I watched, uh, what is it, New Earth. Um, and Rose in that, again, is just you get moments of the old Rose, but it is very heavily coded around this dependency that's developing on the doctor. Um, and you've got in your notes, it's an interesting point that I think needs to be brought up, right? Is that her journey is to become more doctor like, but it gets hijacked by her desire to be with the doctor instead. Um, and I, I think that's could have been a valid story to tell. Uh, it's just, I don't feel like it's being told with any sort of like introspection. Um, it's just a, of course, why wouldn't you fall in love with him as opposed to why would you fall in love with him? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, and uh, to flip that slightly, it's instead of what, why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you love him? It's where it should be. Why wouldn't you want to be like him? Because I feel like the doctor is best when he is a figure of inspiration for other people to act. And that was one of the great things about Christopher Eccleston's first scene was that like, he wasn't so much a man of action as he was a figure for other people to draw strength from. Whereas now with David Tennant, you get the inkling in this episode that, that, that this is a character who, who very much like wants to jump into the scene, wants to act and, who has no problem in being the arbiter of what is right and what is wrong. He has a really strong sense of his, like not a moral compass per se, because I don't think his morality is a hundred percent up to scratch, but like he is assured that when he acts, it's for the best. And that is something that's really good. We're going to see play out with his character. And it's something that plays out in um, the denouement to this episode with, um, Harriet Jones, who we should talk about. Oh, Harriet Jones. Harriet Jones, MP for Flydale? She was MP for Flydale North, and then she became the Prime Minister. Who knows? How do elections work in Britain? (laughs) Isn't that the name of the school from Greece? (laughs) No, that's Rydale. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Okay, okay, all right. Let's, all right. Let's try this again. Um, Harriet Jones in this episode is, um, oh, it's a lot. There's a lot going on here. Um, It's an extension of the problems that have reared their head with Rose, um, both to a lesser degree and then at the very end to a much worse degree. Uh, So let's start with the good parts because there is a lot of good with Harriet Jones in here. Totally. And one of the things that I said to you I really liked about her characterization in this episode um, is the fact that she is a woman in power, amazing, but she's also a woman in power who has not necessarily eschewed some of the more, like, feminine traits that people who are in a position of power are assumed to, like, remove from themselves when they get that level like when you see female politicians or something they always have to like completely neuter themselves like and pretend that they're not female um when they get to that level and i like that harriet jones as a character is written is still like she there's the scene where she like she gives daniel llewellyn like the coffee and you're like this is the prime minister making this like subordinate like a coffee like what what's going on and she's like The other bit is when um, Rose gets beamed onto the TARDIS and she's like, she's not stoic or like, um, like a leader. She's like, oh, Rose, my precious child, my precious thing. Like, 
she's still allowed to be human. She's still allowed to be like humanly and uh, caring and nurturing as well, I think. Um, and uh, not to put too fine a point on it, um, but that is an aspect of her characterization that I really like. She's also like, <laughs> like she is just likable and Penelope Wilton is a fantastic actor. And the joke around like, you know, oh, I'm prime minister. Yes, I know who you are. Like, I really didn't like initially, but like on rewatching this episode, I, I really do vibe with it for the same reasons I said before. It's the fact that she's very down to earth and doesn't like think of herself as like particularly of note. Like, and that could be read as a, like, a sad <laughs> characterization of herself, but I choose to see it as um, her not devaluing herself, but just like, getting on with the job and moving on and, you know, I'm just, I'm the prime minister, but you know, that's not the point. What do we have to do here and now? Um, these are all, I think, great aspects of her characterization. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, interesting point of note, the offering a coffee to the, um, whoever that guy was, you know, she comes in and it's a nice riff off of her original, um, sort of uh, scene in in the uh, Aliens of London World War Three two-parter, you know, has anyone offered you a coffee yet? To me, I think that's a really, that works as a really nice shorthand of explaining why she is different from the politicians that uh, this, you know, fictional version of London has had before. She's, she's personable. She literally does give a shit about the little guy. Uh, and I think that's a really good way of still explaining that she's very much still that woman, despite the fact that she is now in a position of supreme power um and also to your point i like that there is no sacrifice of the femininity she's still allowed to have like you know her hair is down it's not like that sort of like cropped masculine cut that you see with most uh, uh politicians that are women in fiction and whatnot um there's none of that she's not co-opted into what you would imagine a a prime minister a, a woman prime minister has to be and that's really good for the most part um like, and like you said about when she sees Rose, it's all very soft and, and motherly. Like, she's just allowed to sort of fully embody the same character that she was before, only now as a leader. But you do still get hints of, like, you know, the, the steeliness that's going on in her, the fact that she's had to become a leader and whatnot. That starts to get a bit wobbly when Russell T. Davies... The way that he deploys humour when it comes to Harriet Jones is um, exceptionally hit and miss. Uh, because the ongoing joke of Harriet Jones, Prime Minister, and then everybody replying, yes, I know who you are, because of course they do, she's the Prime Minister, is genuinely funny. That's fantastic stuff. I think it's it's a good little bit of character work that carries over and, again, speaks to that kind of like humbleness that's going on inside of that um, of that character. Um, the, but then you get a scene where she has to address the nation uh, because uh, the blood magic stuff is happening. Everyone with type A or whatever it is is being compelled to stand on a ledge somewhere about to kill themselves. And so she gives her address to the nation on Christmas Day and in the middle of it she's like, oh, have we checked on the royal family? And she looks off screen and stuff and the whole, I don't know what I'm doing, please help me, doctor. It's, it's You can't write her as a believable politician and then have her completely undermined in the same scenes because you need a oh harriet jones what a sweetheart joke it, it just feels a bit bleh to me um and uh, again everything in this episode undermines its own characters and and that was just like a, a really small example of it i'm not sure if there's anything else you want to note before we get to the big harriet jones scene 
I do. I want to just touch on that scene because um, the when she yeah that that scene of her on on television, you know, saying, "Doctor, we need your help. I don't know what to do. Um, help us, Doctor." It's funny because I actually like it in isolation from the rest of the episode. I like it as a joke. I like, I do like this, like, you know, have we asked about the royal family? Oh, they're on the roof. And I think that's because of her delivery more than necessarily the actual funniness of that line. Um, But when you consider like the real world implications of that scene, like it's basically a politician going on, on, on television and saying, I don't know what to do. Like I'm completely out of my depth. And that would cause such an uproar like a ridiculous uproar and no wonder that people say she's not fit for office by the end of the episode because she fucking went on television and said i'm not fit for office so um that's one thing the other thing is obviously the ending because like that at the same that's i feel like a symptom of the same issue that that television scene is uh, an example of because I still, I like it as a scene in common, in, um, in isolation as a commentary on the higher standards that women in politics are put to. But in its real world implications, and when I say real world, I mean Doctor Who universe world, it's utterly fucked that the Doctor would use her gender against her to bring her down. Yeah. It is. So um, a primer for those listening who haven't seen it. Um, basically, uh, the Doctor convinces the Sycorax to leave the world peacefully. Um, they are flying away and Harriet Jones gets a call from Torchwood. They have charged up their Death Star laser and <laughs> um, she chooses to destroy the Sycorax ship while it's leaving. Uh, essentially committing um, murder. Possibly genocide, I'm not entirely sure. I don't know if all the Sycorax are on that ship, but whatever. Um and her and the doctor have this really fantastic exchange about uh you know like yes what i just did was morally dubious and definitely quite cutthroat and cruel but at the same time we have to be quite cutthroat and cruel because you don't get a golden age of london like it's like her term has been described throughout the episode as a golden age of london you don't get that without uh, sort of stepping on on a few of those sort of morally dubious choices. And you pair that with the fact that um, from her point of view, she's just watched two of her um, men die on the Sycorax ship because the Doctor was essentially unable to help. And he will not always be there to help Earth. And so at a certain point, they have to stand up for themselves and say, we're defended and we can defend ourselves without the Doctor's help. Um, and in response to that, he decides to threaten her with taking down her whole government with just six words. And those six words are, don't you think she looks tired? Yes. Those are the six words that he chooses to use against her. And as I said before, like it is a very interesting commentary on the fact that, um, the showing that a woman is aging showing like that the, the media and politicians uh you know will use a woman's appearance and like the fact that she's aging to discredit her ability to like run the highest office in the country like is 
as uh, in as which is so fucked as we know in real life but the fact that it's the doctor saying these words legitim- legitimizes that act in a way that shouldn't be i don't know whether he's right or wrong to have done what he did um to bring Harriet Jones down, whether Harriet was wrong in that moment, I I honestly don't know. I don't think you're supposed to know either. I think it is supposed to be left as a question um, about whether Harriet was right or wrong. And the fact that she comes back uh, a few seasons later to kind of defend her actions should go some way to explaining or at least giving her like some kind of rebuttal from this moment. Um, but I think it's an interesting counterpoint with this scene, with a recent scene from Doctor Who season 12, where, so, um, spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen it, but in season 12, um, the master has, comes back and he's regenerated to Sasha Dwan, who is an actor of Indian heritage, but born in England, um, and in there's a scene that has caused a lot of controversy, rightfully, because the Doctor, in this particular scene, the Master is, like, um, using a face filter so he can, like, fit in with the Nazis, basically, who are all about gen, um, racial purity and, you know, white supremacy. This isn't news to anyone, obviously. Um, but the, the Doctor's uh, sort of tactic to slow down the Master in this episode is to remove the filter so the Nazis will see that he's brown and quote-unquote get him. And it's fucked. (laughs) Even as I'm saying it, I'm like, I can't believe that was a scene that was even broadcast in Doctor Who. And this scene with Harriet Jones is that same, it's that same thing happening. Like, where, with the Sasha Duan stuff, it's also a commentary. It's a commentary on race. It's a commentary on the the situation the master's landed himself in and and it's far less nuanced and far more annoying in that seat in that episode um but i'm my my point's getting away from me i'm sorry but like i just because i am so angry about this i'm just i'm just so angry that this was a scene that was allowed to be in doctor who uh yeah isn't there also a line between um uh, 13 and the master in that moment where she's like, I wonder how your new friends would feel about your true face. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there is. And yeah, moments like that, um, whether it's um, the master and the doctor in that scene or Harriet Jones and the doctor in this scene, any moment in the show that has the doctor weaponize actual social and uh, rather actual bigotry against somebody else I find to be just completely wild like what what I, I, I genuinely do not understand what they're thinking and I think it's interesting that both of us are kind of at a loss for words here because it I mean obviously I find it much more egregious with the master stuff um I, I think that is a much more clear-cut example of what the fuck were you thinking when you wrote this scene because it is so incredibly tone deaf and and ugly um but it does make for an interesting comparison because it's maybe one of the only other times that I can think of a situation like this coming up. There's a little bit of it at the end of Kablam where the Doctor essentially reinforces a 
the capitalist machine as as the good guy. Um, but it, it's like I said, it's it's any any scene that basically positions the Doctor to use a a system of bigotry against even if it's an enemy against a person like that. It it really doesn't sit right. And so to bring it back to what's happened with Harriet Jones here. I, I don't even think it's commentary. Like, I, I think it may be unintentional commentary. Um, but I think if you position your quote-unquote hero and good guy as doing the right thing by taking somebody out of power for an abuse of power, that's fine. But once you, like, if you completely tie that to the concept that he had to do it by utilizing a sexist system, I... I think you've completely lost any sort of sense of nuance and commentary that you were possibly trying to make there because there's a scene later on where the doctor is watching her on television get torn apart by journalists for it. And he just kind of watches on like, hmm, hmm, my work here is done. It boggles the mind. Yeah, I think it is pretty clearly commentary. I would push back on that slightly. Um, But it's the fact that it's coming out of the doctor's mouth that is the, the worst part of it. It, it an interesting part of that scene that you we see a doctor in this episode who like because obviously season one was very much characterized by his inability not inability to act but um his hesitation to act necessarily um and with aliens of london world war three like you get that final scene where he chooses where he's He's um, struggling with the decision on whether or not to detonate, uh, to launch the missiles that will destroy Downing Street because it might hurt Rose. And it's interesting because that's also where Harriet says, you know, I'm acting on behalf of the hu- of humanity and I say fire. So you kind of get an inkling of her, like, trigger happiness in that scene. Um, but it's interesting that we go from a doctor who hesitates to act to one who is, has no qualms about, like, bringing down... Uh, a person in power with six simple words and I think it will be interesting for us to watch David Tennant's development uh, as the Doctor from this point out as somebody who has regained their um, confidence in themselves to say what's right and wrong and how that doesn't always necessarily mean that he is right um, I know this is not news. Uh, it's a big part of where he ends up as a character towards the end of his regen, like this regeneration. Um, but I, I think rewatching this episode, I was struck by how early on that is established with this scene in particular. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, I, I think that it just for me, I find it frustrating because I do wish that this episode specifically maybe. Uh, addressed the fact that while he has regained sort of his confidence in making decisions that the first like the second major decision he made was something this inherently problematic um and i don't feel like the show does anywhere near enough to talk about that or to to examine that problem because it is very much in a rush to sort of move along to like the the fun christmas ending um and uh, yeah. Again, it's just it's it's one of the many things that I'm I'm very disappointed in this episode about. Um, but it is good to see him sort of be a little bit more of a definitive force in the show as opposed to what he was doing in season one, which was that whole letting other people make the decisions and prop them up. Um, it, it's good to see the Doctor be the Doctor. I just uh, I hope that this isn't a trend that we see continue. Let's say. 
Um, yeah, and I, I, I think from memory that it isn't, that this is very much explored and built upon from this episode. Like, while it isn't directly addressed in this episode, his um, hubris definitely comes back to bite him uh, as the seasons go on. Um, but I think that is pretty much it, unless there's any other sort of notes that you want to talk about the Christmas invasion. With. Well, we should just briefly touch on Jackie. Yes. Oh, Jackie. Jackie comedy queen Tyler as she's referred to she is very funny in this episode she she does get a lot of really good moments um it's nice to see and this ties in with Mickey as well it's nice to see the doctor treat them as people now um it's a very very nice tonal shift from what Christopher Eccleston was doing to both of them especially to Mickey um like when David Tennant when the doctor first sees Mickey and he calls him Mickey it's uh it's just a really nice moment yeah, it definitely points to the fact that he's a much he's more engaged with humanity this particular doctor um and his emotions as well. Um like he's very much all on the surface when it comes to his emotions sometimes. Um I really like the this the coming together of this like little family unit that is established in this episode. Um like I think there's the shot where Jackie runs to Mickey and Rose after they've beamed back down from the Sycorax ship. And there's just the three of them, like, holding each other and joking. And, like, the doctor looks over to them and he, he's, like, smiling and he's, like, I, I don't know. And then, he like, the fact that he gives Jackie so many hugs in this episode is, like, so heartwarming. Um, and the fact that he joins them for dinner as well. I know you don't like that scene in particular, but um, I really vibe with it because it's such a rare moment of him joining in with the human festivities. Um where he doesn't often get to. And I think it's even highlighted in the next uh, Christmas special about how he doesn't do Christmas dinners, but like he does and he did it here, here, here and now. Um, yeah. There's like, like all of those like humanistic joyous elements I find really good. And Jackie's a big part of that as well. Like her, uh, her comedy, <laughs> her joy- she's just on fire. And one of my favorite scenes, I don't know. I don't think you like this scene either. Um, but it's the one, uh, with the Christmas tree and it it is like very dumb. It's inherently dumb, but her line where she's like, I'm going to get killed by a Christmas tree is uh, so good. Uh, yeah, look, if Christmas specials are your thing, then I imagine that would be a particularly lovely moment. Same with the Christmas dinner. Like I get why these things are in there. And so like, I I genuinely, I don't begrudge this episode, those moments. It's a Christmas special. It does Christmas special moments and it does them relatively charmingly. So my, my main issue, I guess, with the Christmas dinner is that it's sandwiched between two very dark scenes and the episode just doesn't really give much of a shit about grappling with how dark that ending truly is. Like they, they have the Christmas dinner and then I think Jackie gets a phone call or something. She's like, oh, it's snowing outside. And they all run outside to like find everybody playing in the quote unquote snow. And the doctor's like, that's not snow. That's the ash of the Sycorax ship burning up on re-entry. And it's like, this is fucking horrifying. And the episode's just like, hey, don't worry about it. It's Christmas. <laughs> totally. Um, I, I didn't even realize until rewatching it this time that like, I always remember that there's a running joke in this in the specials about how it never really it doesn't really snow properly. The snow that appears in each special is always like a result of some alien intervention. Um, but this one is very 
it's real bad um, because, like, yeah, like, they are basically standing in the snow of burnt Sycorax. Like, the remains of the <laughs> fucking rest of the Sycorax race. And they're like, oh, it's snowing. Or oh, it's just, it's a bit, it's the dark undertone of that scene. Once you see it, you can't unsee it, basically. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And um, it, an interesting comparison I'm going to make here, uh, and this is very much just for the two of us, really. But uh, CJ and I are very into a uh, TV series called The Bold Type, which is about three women living in New York and you know living their dreams, working in a fashion magazine, the typical sort of shit that you'd expect. Um, but the show is typically quite introspective and smart in the way that it handles uh, tropes associated with that kind of media. And the most recent series finale ended with the two of the three women quietly dealing with something that is quite heavy or emotional and whatnot. Um, But they bury that down for the sake of having what would typically be like a happy dance montage set to like, you know, the kind of the poppy music about living your dreams and chasing your goals and that sort of stuff. And they're dancing around the room. And you know that the entire scene is this like fabricated front of how much pain they're in quietly. And this ending reminded me of that in, in a very direct way in the sense that like yeah it's it's snowing on christmas and everyone's having a beautiful christmas dinner but like what's actually going on here is is quite disturbing um and i just wish that the show even had just like a touch of self-awareness about that because i'm not sure that it does yeah there's definitely like wildly shifting tones in that final like section from the harriet jones to the dinner to the to the snow um, which I think is probably a symptom of the fact that this is the first, this is the first Christmas special and the first time that the production team have had to like pitch the Doctor Who as a, as a show for a, a slightly different audience because there are, on Christmas Day, there are always people watching Doctor Who who wouldn't necessarily watch it any other time of the year. Um, and I think that that has sometimes been a hindrance to the show and produced some real clankers. Um, and this is no exception. I think it's, they've really tried to please everyone. And as a result have kind of ended up pleasing no one, um, by not really settling down into what kind of episode I want it to be. Um, having said all of that, I do think that there is some joy to be had from the, um, the first initial scenes with the pilot fish I find like particularly inoffensive the slow ramping threat of the Sycorax ship approaching I find really effective it's just when we get onto the ship that I think it all just kind of goes off the rails and it culminates in that fight scene which is just dreadfully acted and blocked and directed yeah I I think that that's fair because the first 20 minutes or so of this episode are a lot of fun. Um, even with the Christmas stuff that I, I typically don't like, I still had a good time with it. Uh, it's, um, yeah, it, it's just the, the second and third acts and the way that the script especially operates during that time for me. Um, it really just craters my, my enjoyment of, of this one. Um, I think we're ready to render this with a, a final rating. I think so. Yeah. What would you give it? Um, I came into this being all like, oh, maybe like a B, maybe a B minus, you know, like it's fun. It's cute. Don't worry about it, James. Um, but the more we've gotten into this, uh, I, I really don't, I really don't like this episode. So I am going with a C minus. 
Fair enough. I'm giving it a C, I think. Um, it's definitely not top-tier Doctor Who, that's for sure. No, no, it certainly isn't. Um, but what is top-tier is this show. And as always, we want to thank you folks for listening every week. Uh, if you would like, uh, you could drop us a review on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen, as that would really help us grow and generally make us feel quite good about ourselves. If you would like to reach out or have any questions or thoughts, you can have them read on the show by emailing us at twoheartspodcast at gmail.com. That's two, the word two. Or you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at twoheartspod, the number two. As always, I have been one of your hosts, James, and you can find me on Twitter at OMGMoreJames. And I have been CJ, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CJMcLean underscore. And next week, we will be looking at the very first episode of Season 2, New Earth. (laughs) Um, So yeah, we will see you folks in two weeks' time. Um, Stay safe, stay healthy, and look after each other. Till then, bye! was an episode fuck (laughs) 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 shit okay